This program is brought to you from the Margaret Farrow Studio. Hello, I'm Scott Bauer, Capital Correspondent for the Associated Press, filling in as host for Newsmakers this week for Lisa. Uh, with the 2024 Republican National Convention set for Milwaukee next summer, and the Democratic Convention set for Chicago, the Midwest is once again in the center stage for the 2024 election cycle. And this week, Milwaukee is also playing host to the first Republican presidential primary debate. So with all of that going on, there's no better time to talk about 2024 and where Wisconsin fits into the national picture than today with Charles Franklin, polling director for the Marquette Law School poll, and Anthony Trigoski, UW Lacrosse political science professor. Welcome, both of you. Uh, big, big week in Wisconsin this week. Uh, we have the first Republican presidential debate. What will each of you be looking for uh, at the debate tomorrow night? We'll start with you, Anthony. How does the absence of Donald Trump affect the debate? Someone can be there when they're not really there in this case. And who is the breakout star, Scott? I think we're going to see at least one breakout performance from the candidates. Who is the candidate that can make that jump in the low single digits, mid single digits, get up to that next tier? A lot of people watching South Carolina Senator T Tim Scott, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley has potential possibilities, but we'll have to wait and see. Who is that candidate that seizes the moment and is able to take their campaign to the next stage? which candidates go the opposite direction as the result of a poor performance. And I, I want to come back to that point, but Charles, first, your thoughts on what you're looking for. I, I agree very much with Anthony on this. I think the emphasis is that a lot of these candidates, in fact, most of them, are unknown to more than half of the Republican electorate in our national surveys. Uh, so you have a few, of course, Mike Pence, Chris Christie, uh, who are very well known. Donald Trump goes without saying. Uh, but for all of the others, this is an opportunity to get in the spotlight for a week or two after the debate. And at that point, it's up to them to either make something out of that opportunity or fail to. And on the negative side, as Anthony was saying, uh, the ones that just fade, that have an uninteresting, unspectacular night, and who, having been in single digits, go down to no digits. Uh, those are possibilities as well. So with Donald Trump not attending the debate and viewership possibly being lower because of that, what, what can these candidates do to raise their profile? What are some things you're, you're thinking that they may seize on? Will it be the lack of Donald Trump? Will it be the indictments? Will it be something else, Anthony? Well, the viewership issue is a very real one for these candidates because with lower viewership comes lower potential for this debate to really make an impact on the race. They could go after Donald Trump. We know that Governor Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey, has been anxious to do just that. But how does that land when Donald Trump is not actually there? How much do candidates go after Ron DeSantis, the second place contender, or Vivek Ramaswamy, who seems to be on the rise a bit in the polls? A lot of strategic considerations at play as the candidates get on the debate stage. I think that the thing we'll almost certainly talk about is who landed a good zinger or who had a moment where they fell apart. Those will show up on social media and be repeated. 
But I think the more lasting opportunity is someone who makes a positive impression throughout the evening, who manages not just to live off of the tactical maneuver of who are you attacking, but off of providing an alternative. What we know is Donald Trump has a significant lead in the primary polls, but that's a lead in which Trump is usually getting around 55% of the vote. So that leaves 45% undecided or scattered among the others. It will be a very difficult task for one of the others to consolidate that not Trump support. But I think in the longer strategic sense, that's got to be the goal of a serious competitor to Trump. They have to consolidate support and then later try to convince some of Trump's supporters that maybe this alternative is good as well. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this is a nationally televised debate, a national uh, presidential race, of course, but it's happening here in Wisconsin. Wisconsin has a very interesting and complicated history with Donald Trump. Um, he didn't win the primary in 2016. That was Ted Cruz. He did win the state in 2016. He lost it in 2020. How do you think the Wisconsin dynamic will come through on this debate tomorrow night? Do you expect there to be much of a, of a pitch or a talk that's Wisconsin specific? Or do you think the candidates are just going to more or less ignore the fact that they're in Milwaukee and talk about what they would talk about regardless? Let's start with you, Charles. I'm guessing they speak to a national audience rather than Wisconsin interests. Uh, there might be some passing mention. Uh, but I think the most important thing they might do that's sort of locally focused is to stress that question about how close Wisconsin is in most elections, presidential certainly, and how important for the Electoral College and use that to riff on the argument that this race is important and we've got to win these swing states and look at how Trump's 2016 victory was followed by 18 and 20 and 22, mm -hmm. where he and his, uh, some of his backed candidates didn't fare so well. I want to key in on that point from Charles, that point about electability. One of the arguments that a candidate could make is that they are electable and Donald Trump is not. We've seen Governor Ron DeSantis try to make that case. His poll numbers indicate that he's not doing a great job at making that case. His electability argument does not seem to be landing particularly well with voters. So to Charles's point, I'm watching for a couple things. To what extent do candidates specifically make the case about electability? And if they do make that case about electability, to what extent do Republican voters care? To what extent do Republican voters prioritize electability among other considerations that they might take into account in making their choice? So even without Donald Trump tomorrow night, plenty to watch for in the, in the Republican debate. Um, as, we, as I mentioned at the outset, we have the Republican convention in Milwaukee next summer, the Democratic convention in Chicago, a couple hours down the road. Um, once again, the Midwest in the spotlight. What is it about the Midwest that has the national parties wanting to come here, both of them, uh, for their nominating conventions? Charles? Uh, history of close elections. You know, uh, four of the last six presidential races, Wisconsin's been decided by less than 1% and indeed less than 25,000 votes in all four of those recent elections, the Obama elections being the exception. Um, but it's also that Wisconsin in particular has been very close to the tipping point of the Electoral College 
when Wisconsin, when the Electoral College. Now, that includes other states, Pennsylvania and Michigan in 2016, for example. Um, and so it's not just on us, but we are so close to the middle of the Electoral College, as well as being this very close competitive state. And we're pretty lonely in the middle. <laughs> there is a shrinking battlefield in the Electoral College. Very few states nowadays that are considered competitive. I can count them on one hand, pretty much, the number of states that could be decisive in this election. So it makes complete sense to focus on that small group of states that could be decisive that, as Charles said, could be that tipping point state, putting a candidate over the edge in the electoral vote. Well, you mentioned that, and, and we have uh, Crystal Ball has Wisconsin as one of four toss-up states, Wisconsin, Nevada, Georgia, Arizona, and the Cook Report, also one of four, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania. Um, why, why does Wisconsin continue to be a swing state while other states kind of come and go? Anthony, we talked about this a little bit last week. What is it about, what's going on here that makes Wisconsin maybe different than the other swing states? Wait, these trends in Wisconsin that seem to balance each other out, Republicans gain ground in a particular area, Democrat, Democrats gain ground in another area. In recent times, Scott, we've seen Republicans gain ground in rural Wisconsin, while Democrats gain ground in the suburbs, and they also take advantage of high voter turnout and the growing population in Dane County. So these trends that seem to be a wash at the end of the day, leaving Wisconsin as a 50-50 state. Charles, you've done a lot of polling uh, statewide and you live, you work in the Milwaukee area. What is going on in the suburbs and how does that affect the, the statewide vote? Yeah, it, and it's that we have these countervailing forces that Anthony just mentioned, the rural going one way, the suburbs another, and also urban areas, including some of our medium and smaller sized cities becoming more blue, but they may be surrounded by a very red countryside in their county. I, it's a bit of a mystery why these things are balancing each other so much that we haven't seen a governor or a president able to shift the balance in the state kind of permanently. Um, we've moved a little bit in actually a Republican direction since we started polling in 2012 when Democrats had about a four-point advantage in party identification, today Republicans have a one-point advantage or it's a dead tie. So we've, if anything, actually become more balanced on partisanship. And that, despite these changes geographically, which are very real, the thing about the suburbs in statewide races is that the suburbs are relatively a lot of people. And if you look at the wow counties, the three counties around Milwaukee, the net shift between 2012 and 2020 was 40,000 votes in a Democratic direction. And in a state decided by 23,000 votes, shifting that 40,000 is pretty significant. Doesn't change legislative elections or others with districts involved, but for statewide races, those losses for Republicans in the suburbs are a big deal, but are largely offset by the rural gains that we've seen since 2012 for Republicans. And that's an argument you hear often on, among Republicans is that Donald Trump is losing these suburban Milwaukee voters. Um, he can't win statewide. 
because of that and maybe because of other factors. Um, Anthony, you live in, in the western part of the state and, and, and that's an interesting area too in terms of the 3rd the Congressional District lacrosse area. What kind of things are you seeing among those voters out there that um, affect the statewide vote? We're seeing that rural shift where the rural areas in Wisconsin are increasingly becoming the heart and soul of the Republican Party here. As Charles said, we are also seeing those mid-sized cities move more into the Democratic Party column where I am in La Crosse and to the north of us in Eau Claire. So in many ways, while Western Wisconsin is known for being a bit of a wild card sometimes in elections, known for being a bit unpredictable, known for being very competitive, we are are still seeing those statewide trends in the western part of the state. Well, with the Republican presidential debate in, in the state, we've talked a lot about Republicans. Let's talk a little bit on, about the Democrats. Um, Charles, you've done some polling statewide on President Biden and, and others, but let's talk about President Biden right now. What, what are the numbers showing in terms of his approval rating in Wisconsin, and, and how does that play out um, statewide? Yeah, in Wisconsin, he's about where he is nationally, maybe a shade better than nationally, but that's not terribly good. Uh, his national approval numbers are averaging about 41% uh, in Wisconsin. In our June poll, he was at 45%, which was a bit up from where we had had him in the fall of 2022, but still well under 50% and with a majority disapproving. This is tricky because that was true throughout the Trump administration, that Trump had negative job approval. It was true for a good bit of the Obama uh, eight years that his approval was in the 40s. It comes from the opposite party being so negative about the other party's president that it pulls down um, overall approval. It means that as an indicator of how the election's going to go, it's less helpful than it used to be just because there's sort of an unpersuadable group of voters in the other party, and then it's just the independents and your own loyal troops, and then turnout, turnout, turnout. Sure. Uh, Anthony, we saw President Biden in Milwaukee last week. Vice President Harris was also in the southeastern Wisconsin um, the week before that. What do you make of these visits by them? Um, is that a, yet another nod to the importance of Wisconsin? And, and how is that playing throughout the whole state? Yeah, very important areas to turn out the vote, as Charles said. As the range of persuadable voters narrows, 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 it's more important to reach that base, particularly in the Milwaukee area. We talked about wild cards, one of them being Western Wisconsin. Milwaukee turnout, another wild card. That's where the Democrats really need to see strong numbers in order to win a statewide election, including the upcoming presidential election. So the general election is already underway when it comes to Joe Biden and the Democrats. He faces no serious competition within his own party. It gives him the benefit of being able to focus on these swing states as opposed to focusing on Iowa, focusing on New Hampshire, as the Republican field is currently doing. What about issues, um, Charles? What are some of the issues that voters say in your polls that they care about right now, and, and what candidates are speaking to those or not speaking to those? Yeah, I think that's an open question as we go into the election. Abortion certainly has been a big issue since the Supreme Court overturned the Roe versus Wade decision. We saw that come up in the fall in our elections in 2022, and in the Supreme Court race seems likely to be an issue going forward. On the other hand, if we really do end up with a rerun of 2020, Trump, the Trump versus Biden show, we've seen this. We know what the storyline is. 
it may be more personality driven and less the usual issues. Uh, we certainly saw inflation as an issue in 2022, but we've seen that decline some. Uh, and I think within the parties, you see very different issue focuses. Republicans very concerned about the southern border, for example. Democrats not mentioning that so much, but worried about gun violence, for example. Mm -hmm. Anthony, what's your read on what do you think the Wisconsin voters care about going into 2024? It's really tough to know, Scott. It's worth remembering at this point in the 2020 election cycle, COVID-19 did not exist yet. <laughs> that ended up becoming the defining issue of the 2020 presidential campaign. So I think I am taking a bit of a wait and see approach to see if there is that one key issue, that one key policy item that drives the electorate. But to Charles's point, I, I completely agree. If this is Trump versus Biden round two, then I do think it becomes a lot more about personality than policy issues. Of course, the political context will have a lot to say about that. Sure. And Donald Trump obviously is not the nominee yet, uh, you, and it's very early on, but you have done some polling on how the other Republicans are stacking up. What, what, have, what has that shown so far? I think the gist of it is that Trump has a substantial advantage, whether you're talking nationally or most state polls. Um, but there's <clears throat> excuse me, within the Republican Party in Wisconsin and nationally, about 70 percent say they have a favorable view of Trump, 30 percent unfavorable. That 30 percent almost entirely is going with someone else in the primary, but they're divided among who else. But among the 70 that percent that like Trump, he's only getting 55 percent of the vote. So that means that there's about 15 percent of Republicans that like him but are telling us in the survey that they are voting for someone else or are undecided. Mm -hmm. So that's the amorphous group that if one of those other candidates could pull them together, they could come up to maybe 40%, maybe conceivably 45%, still leaves Trump in a solid advantage, but you could then see the dynamics of the race change. I think there are two parts, one is, what happens between now and the New Hampshire or the Iowa caucus in January? And then if Trump wins both Iowa and New Hampshire, it's hard to see what slows him down. If he should lose one or both of those, then we go into a second phase as candidates drop out. There's uh, the emergence of a new winner, the giant, uh, I won't say it killer, but right. the giant who defeated Trump twice then that would be a whole new dynamic, but we're not remotely there yet. That really requires people going to the polls and voting in well, January. Well, as a reminder of 2016, Trump did not win Iowa. He did not win Wisconsin in April, and yet he was the nominee. Um, Anthony, if we have, uh, you know, not knowing where things are going to be going into April uh, for the Wisconsin primary, but what, based on the way your reading of things right now, do you anticipate we'll have a contested Republican um, primary at that point, or do you think it's pretty much going to be determined by Wisconsin's time on the on the calendar? Given the math that Charles was talking about, right now we are on track for Trump to have this thing wrapped up pretty early in the process. Now a lot can change, and Charles quite correctly noted that if 
Trump loses one or both of Iowa and New Hampshire, that really changes the game. But right now, it's just frankly not much of a race. Mm -hmm. So Trump is on path to have this thing wrapped up by the time Wisconsin votes. And Scott, it's reflective of a bit of a contrast between Wisconsin's role in the nomination process and the general election. Wisconsin has a minor role, if that, in presidential party nominations. Mm -hmm. Wisconsin is perhaps the decisive state in the general election. So it's quite Quite a difference between those two stages of the electoral process. Well, we've talked a lot about presidential politics, so let's narrow down into the state level for a bit here. We do have a U.S. Senate race in 2024, Tammy Baldwin up for a third term. Um, we've yet to see a prominent Republican. We do have one candidate who's announced, um, but we've yet to see a big name Republican get into the race. In fact, we've had a couple uh, say they're not going to run. Um, Charles, what's your read on what's going on in that in that Senate race right now? I, th I think recruiting a candidate is the biggest issue or a, a big name candidate that's a household name. Um, I, part of that is because Baldwin has had strong electoral successes, beating Tommy Thompson in 2012, winning by nearly 11 points in 2018. She has a lot of money in the bank. She's a formidable opponent. And so if you're a member of Congress who has a pretty good day job, do you really want to put that all on the line against this candidate with a proven success story? And in Baldwin's case, she's one of the Democrats that makes inroads into some parts of the state that Democrats usually lose pretty badly in. And in some of those, she wins counties in the North and West that normally are Republican majority counties. But in others, she simply mitigates her losses and doesn't lose badly. And all of that's a recipe for success for a Democrat to get out of the base of Milwaukee and Dane County and, and, and La Crosse and Eau Claire as well and to make inroads in these other places. Baldwin's proven she can do that. The other thing is, what is the general atmosphere? The presidential election will say something about who has advantages and disadvantages, and that's also an issue for recruiting Republican candidates. Anthony, I want to play off that point on, on Senator Baldwin because she does seem to emphasize a lot of issues uh, in rural Wisconsin, dairy, um, keep America, you know, American-based jobs, a lot of issues that would resonate in those rural areas. In La Crosse, um, she's a frequent visitor to that area, among others throughout the state. How do, you, how do you think she is able to bridge that, cross that divide into those uh, more rural parts of the state that tend to lean Republicans? Those hyper-local issues that you talked about, Scott, focusing on those deeply local community issues, those issues of the health and the well-being and the transportation, and just all the stuff that affects people's daily lives, really staying out of those culture war issues, staying out of those more divisive issues in politics, and trying to focus on those local issues where yeah, there really isn't a Republican or Democrat position. So I think trying to build that candidate-centric style of politics, as opposed to a party-centric style of politics, trying to get people to see her as an individual politician and not necessarily thinking her as a Democrat first, because if they think of her as a Democrat first, then that really limits her ability to overperform the top of the ticket. I think it's very likely that she will overperform Joe Biden, and she does that through that candidate-centric, individualized, hyper-local style of politics. 
In other races, congressional races, we've seen a few candidates pop up in the first and the third districts. Um, Anthony, the third congressional district, Derek Van Orden, um, narrowly won, lost, narrowly lost four years ago, narrowly won two years or a year ago, uh, last cycle. He'll be up again. Um, what's your read on both that district and other districts across the state? Are, is there an ability or a potential for any of these to flip, or should the incumbents feel pretty comfortable? I think Derek Van Orden's in a pretty good spot right now. This is a district that, to some extent, has trended in the Republicans' direction out in western Wisconsin. And Derek Van Orden seems to fit the district fairly well in terms of his political style. There's a reason that he gave Ron Kind the closest race of Congressman Kind's long career in Congress. There's a reason that Derek Van Orden was able to prevail in the 2020 to elections. Now, he will have plenty of challengers. There's more on the way is what I'm hearing. Uh, there's currently two people in the race. Word on the street is that there's more to come. Uh, but he's a strong candidate. He's a strong campaigner. He's a strong fundraiser. And in a Republican-leaning district, uh, that could add up to a re-election for him. Charles, any thoughts on the congressional map? I think the only thing is that the first congressional district um, used to be very solidly Republican and unexpectedly, I think, after the redistricting in 2021, it still leans significantly Republican, but it's close enough that you can imagine in a very good year for Democrats that that can be an extremely competitive race. Mm -hmm. There too, as with the Senate race, it's an issue of candidate recruitment. and. I think there's at least one and maybe two Democrats who have said they're going to run in that race. Mm -hmm. and the question is, uh, Congressman Style has strong financial uh, support, good money in the bank and that sort of thing. So it's, it's an opportunistic race. Uh, like I agree with the third as well, these are Republican-leaning districts. If you had a good Democratic year, you could see very competitive races. Or if you had a unique candidate who found a message that they could really make work mm -hmm. against one of the Republican incumbents. But most of our districts are so lopsidedly partisan, it doesn't apply. The first and the third are the two that seem remotely likely to end up in a close race. Well, in our final minutes here, let's talk a little bit about legislative districts. Um, we obviously have now two cases uh, being requested for the state Supreme Court to take up on redistricting both of which are seeking new legislative maps, both of which want to see all 132 districts on the uh, ballot next year in 2024, kind of an unprecedented uh, event here. Not knowing what the state Supreme Court is going to do, uh, but let's talk about the potential that those lines are redrawn and that we have 132, all the lawmakers on the ballot next year. What does that do to just turnout and to the presidential race and everything else, what what impact would that have? We'll start with you, Anthony. There's going to be a battle for attention there because you have a presidential race, you have a Senate race in two districts. As Charles mentioned, you have potentially competitive House elections. So one big issue is just breaking through as a down-ballot candidate, as a state legislative candidate. How do you get attention when there's so much attention being directed elsewhere in the campaign environment? But it would be an enormously consequential shift for Wisconsin state government because right now, under the current maps, Republicans have a good shot at getting a two-thirds veto-proof majority in both the state assembly 
and the state senate. They currently have that in the state senate, not too far from that in the state assembly. With new districts, that would really rule out the possibility of a two-thirds majority for Republicans. Given their strength in rural areas, given the geographic distribution of Republican voters, they'd be a safe bet, I think, pretty safe bet to maintain the majority, just not the dominant majorities that they currently enjoy. Charles? Yeah, there are very few seats in either the Assembly or the Senate that are within 10 points of each other in partisanship. And so what we see is the ma big majority of Republican seats get typically 60 to 65 percent or more. The Democratic seats are even safer with even bigger Democratic majorities, and that comes from concentrating Democratic votes in a few Democratic seats while keeping a significant advantage in the Republican seats. If a redistricting plan came out that created 20 or 30 seats in the sort of 40 to 60 percent range for either party, then it would be interesting because the parties haven't had to compete very widely in legislative races before. Now there would be a free-for-all for resources for identifying which are going to be the genuinely competitive seats, whereas under the current plan, you could just write off the vast majority of seats and just compete in a handful. Mm -hmm. So I do think if redistricting were to occur, and depending on how competitive those seats are, we could see both parties scrambling to figure out how to allocate resources to genuinely competitive races across a number of seats. And all of this would be happening with the U.S. Senate race going on, a presidential race going on, high turnout, which would obviously help some parts of the state and hurt others, depending on which party you are, so it would be a fascinating dynamic. Um, I want to thank both of you um, for coming on today. Charles Franklin, Marquette University Law School poll director, Anthony Shrigoski, uh, University of Wisconsin-Lacrosse uh, political science professor. It's really important to share your knowledge and information here, especially this week as we head into the first Republican presidential debate here in Milwaukee. Uh, that'll be at 8 o'clock on Wednesday, viewable on Fox News. Thank you to our viewers and uh, watchers for watching today and tune in next time as we highlight the issues and sit down with the decision makers who make a difference. Thanks again, guys. This program is a production of Wisconsin Eye, an independent, nonpartisan, nonprofit media network with a mission to inform, educate, and engage the citizens of Wisconsin. Wisconsin Eye is the nation's first and only independently funded state civics broadcast network, providing gavel to gavel access to government proceedings and events at the state capitol.